This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 30th, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 322 of Defender Radio. We know that grizzly bears love fish. We know that grizzly bears can come into conflict with people and infrastructure. And now, thanks to researchers at Raincoast Conservation Foundation, we know how those two facts are tied together. Earlier this month, Raincoast published a study in the journal Scientific Reports titled Ecology of Conflict, Marine Food Supplies Affects Human-Wildlife Interactions on Land. By examining over three decades of conflict-killed grizzly reports, the researchers determined that food availability was the greatest cause of conflict, and that other factors such as hunting or population levels played a much less significant role. To discuss this study, what it means for policy decisions in the future, and why understanding how important ecological studies are to wildlife management, Defender Radio spoke with the lead author of the study, Kyle Artell, who is a biologist for Raincoast and Hakai PhD scholar at Simon Fraser University. What I find interesting when we when we look at a paper like this is what was the impetus for what what was the original sort of we should look at this why did you and the group decide to look specifically at uh, uh how marine food supply well it wasn't actually marine food supply you looked at multiple things um but effectively looking at uh conflict killed grizzlies i think probably is the the uh the sort of the baseline what what led to that uh starting point um so the impetus for this study uh when it first was sort of envisioned uh, almost a decade ago uh, my co-supervisor, Chris Daremont, um, had the idea of taking a, a sort of in-depth look at this association between uh, food availability and bear-human conflict. There'd been sort of um, little patches of conflict uh, throughout the province where people had anecdotally noted it's a really bad salmon year, conflict is up. And, and this is a pattern that people have seen in, uh, in different places in the province. And so he just wanted to sort of, he had this idea of taking a, a more in-depth look, looking at the data across years and seeing if we could really tease out these ecological associates. And so at the time, I was just sort of a grad student that happened to be, um, uh, to be around and, and uh, I came onto the project and we since expanded it. As we were sort of looking at this particular food question, we realized that this isn't the only sort of hypothesis that people will often um, present for, for patterns of bear-human conflict. Um, so one of the other ones that people will often say is that, ah, bears are coming into town. Uh, we've never seen them like this before. There's more than we've ever seen. The population must be exploding. And we have to do something about it. We have to hunt them to reduce the population and protect ourselves. So this is another hypothesis, um, another explanation people often give. And then a third one is that it might just be problem individuals, sort of like the analogy of how we lock up criminals in human society to deal with crime. That's one approach that's taken. So this, this idea is if you get rid of the problem individual, the conflict should go away. Um, so we decided that we, there was sort of these three different explanations that have been given for patterns of conflict in the province. So one, that the population might be too big, another, that there might be too many problem individuals, or a third, that there might have, have something to do with this food availability, um, that maybe conflict is going up in years with low food. And so we wanted to use, to, to examine these sort of in-depth, and we used 35 years of data of grizzly bear human conflict from across the province to do so. Well, and what I find interesting, and uh, this came up actually with uh, an interview I did, and I, I'm sure you've heard about the study now, 
uh, it was just last week I did the interview, and I think the study came out the week before regarding wolf culls and poaching um, based out of uh, uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. And the government said, well, poach, or if we have a cull, it'll reduce poaching. And they did the analyses, and it turned out, no, it actually increases poaching. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what I found interesting about it was that it wasn't looking at it just as if we're seeing this change in population, it must be because of X. Um, and, and this is something I think, you know, as, as a non-science person, um, uh, as a layperson, I look at it and I say, well, you started out looking to see, you know, what's causing, you know, uh, uh, bears, or you think that the reduction in salmon is going to increase conflict with bears. So that's what you want to define. But even from the beginning, you very quickly start thinking, well, could it be also these other things and you test all of them uh, how important is it when you're looking at this kind of thing particularly i think with with wildlife ecology where there are so many variables um you know from you know uh, how much rain you got one year through to you know where the the uh the heat waves came in through summer H- how do you determine sort of what the best hypotheses to to investigate would be yeah, that's a good question, and it's sort of a fundamental one um, as as an ecologist. That when you're trying to explain a pattern, you really want to think about well, what else might be driving it? Um, what else might be causing the patterns that we've seen? Uh, and one way to do this, of course, is to look and see well, what have other people suggested might be causing that? Um, and so in our case, it, it, there was sort of uh, there there were these alternate explanations that we often hear, um, and that do have uh, you know on first blush, they might make some sense. There might be some reason why you might envision uh, this actually working. Um, And so in this particular case, we had some direction in terms of other things that might be explaining the conflict, and we were able to explore them at the same time. Um, In terms of of this being uh, an important approach to consider, I, I do think it's quite important because what it does is it allows you to weigh the evidence for all of these different explanations at the same time. So you're not just saying, well, there's some data to support this particular association. You're actually saying, okay, of all these different explanations, what 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 are the data sort of um, as the arbiter? What do the data suggest uh, is the best explanation? What is the most support? And so it just gives you a little bit of a, a broader understanding. It lets you sort of cover uh, more potential explanations and really get a fuller picture of what might, or importantly, what might not be uh, be affecting patterns you're seeing. Okay, and then uh, before we get into some of these results, the other part of that I wanted to touch on was the population aspect. Um, again, I'm not sure how aware you might be, but in Ontario, we've had a black bear spring hunt start up again, uh, and they did it through for all kinds of different reasons. And finally, a uh, uh, an economist uh, who, in many ways, I think is very similar to an ecologist, just in methodology. Um, said, look, like we, we look at all of this data, we look at all of the Ontario's data, we look at all of it from surrounding areas, and there is absolutely no evidence that this hunt is causing this or that populations are causing conflicts. But what does make sense is, A, that it's economic. So, you know, just ignore the other arguments because that's what you're going for. But also, you know, there's all these other aspects that are being completely ignored. So when you, when you look at this then, uh, um, and I think... In BC, it's tricky because in Ontario, you can pretty much fly across the whole province without a lot of trouble. Uh, but when we're talking populations, how do you how how do you determine how many grizzlies there are, and whether or not like could there be a surge in places that we can't get to? 
Right. Is, is that something that can be considered? It's an excellent question. So in terms of how you would get an idea of how many bears there are, uh, it's difficult. So it's an enormous province. Um, it's it's uh, with a lot of very inaccessible places, absolutely. Um, I actually work with a project here in Celtic territory in British Columbia, and one that, that is also uh, occurs in, in neighboring First Nations on the coast, where we actually do on the ground, and in partnership with Rancos Conservation, I should say, um, in all these territories, where we do on the ground uh, monitoring of bears. So we set up these non-invasive hair snagging stations, or these these barbed wire corrals that just pluck out sort of tufts of hair from individual bears. And from these individual hairs, we can find out genetically who the individual was. We can track that individual through time as they go to multiple uh, different stations of ours. Uh, and we can estimate population sizes. We're still working on that, actually, the analyses to find out what the population density is here and how it might be changing from year to year. Um, but this is a, a, a very logistically challenging work. Our, in this particular project, all of our sites are accessed um, by helicopter and by boat because there aren't roads up here. Um, and so it, it is challenging logistically to get good population estimates. And that's what we're getting is good population estimates. In the rest of the province, um, there are little, there will be sort of, uh, for the vast majority of the rest of the province, there might be occasional inventories that will occur. So they'll do this kind of a project for a year or two, a small amount of time, um, as opposed to multiple years, which is happening here. Um, and then in the rest of the province, they use one of two approaches. One is expert opinion, where they, they talk to, uh, to, to experts um, uh, and say, how many bears do you think they are? there are, more or less? Uh, and then in the rest of the province, they use this modeling approach. So they say, okay, we know that this particular area is, is, uh, has this amount of mountains, it has this species of plants, it has this much, much precipitation, therefore there must be this many bears. So they, they basically estimate from, from satellite photos um, and other, other uh, data like that, how many bears there should be on the landscape. And then they, uh, they set a quota based on that. So it's highly, highly, highly uncertain how many bears there actually are. And importantly, with this kind of an approach where you're estimating how many bears there are based on, yeah, again, the, the number of mountains, uh, the species of plants, there is almost no way to detect if the population is to crash because your, your, your air satellite photos are the same, uh, the, the yearly precipitation estimates are the same, um, and sort of anecdotal observations, oh, I'm seeing less bears this year, I'm seeing more bears this year, do not necessarily tie that closely to actual population trends. Um, so, so yeah, so it's a highly, highly uncertain um, approach. Uh, the, the best estimate of the number of bears is currently 15,000 in the province, and that might indeed be the best estimate, but it's highly uncertain. It could be considerably lower, it could be considerably higher. That's um, And unfortunately, oh, sorry. So that's, it's, it's really just kind of frightening when you look at it that way, uh, and to hear it that way. And I guess that's one of the problems when we talk policy and we talk more pop, pop media uh, science is people want an absolute. They want to say there are this many bears, so we can right. now talk about it in this way. And I guess you just, it's sort of, you have to have that little, you know, a tilde next to pretty much everything you do uh, yeah. uh, to sort of approximate what we're doing. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, though, that uncertainty is just inherent. Uh, where it's impossible, especially uh, in a place like BC, uh, with a species that uh, occurs at such low densities and is so difficult to study. It's impossible to know precisely how many there are, but that in and of itself isn't a problem. 
Um, there's approaches in fisheries, for instance. Uh, it's commonplace that you take this, this quantitative approach to say, we have all this uncertainty. Uh, populations could be as low as this or could be as high as this. How many should we take so that we're sort of taking this precautionary approach and that we keep risk below an acceptable level? Um, so, so that you just sort of incorporate all this stuff numerically and you say, okay, if we set the target as X, we know that there's a 10% chance of overharvesting, but we're willing to take that, that risk. Um, so there are ways to do it. Uh, just because there's uncertainty uh, doesn't mean that uh, you just sort of throw your hands up in the air and say, say, well, you know, we can't say one way or the other. You can say, okay, if conservation is a concern, then we'll take this analytical approach, we'll incorporate all this uncertainty, and we'll come up with a target that basically buffers us against the unknowns that might exist. Yeah, and that's that's I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but that is something we see coming yeah. out of Raincoast frequently. Is uh, and, and I imagine yeah. again for for you guys who who do this every day, all day, just banging your head against the wall, saying we don't know, so we have to try and guess at a level of safe risk, right? And and I mean that's I think you you come across that in all aspects of life. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. when I go and I look at stocks. Well, I know I could lose my ten dollars because that's how I invest. By the way, it's in quantities of ten dollars. Um, but <laughs> right, right. you know, I could lose my ten dollars, but I could also gain. It could stay the same, and I have to measure all of that and decide how comfortable am I with this decision. How how willing am I to lose that ten dollars? And if they're not really saying how willing are we, uh, or or you know, they're not at least accepting the fact that the loss is possible, then I think it is very dangerous and frightening. Um, no, it's a good, it's a good analogy um, that that we have to do things every day that have some kind of uncertainty in them, but we take that uncertainty into account in one way or another. So like with investment, as you say, there's uncertainty in how it'll turn out, and so we should invest prudently. Um, the analogy for not taking uncertainty account is uh, Russian roulette, right? Yeah. You pull the trigger, there's no guarantee that anything bad's going to happen. There's no guarantee at all. But there's also no guarantee <laughs> that the next uh, bullet in the ra that the next uh, round, uh, you know what I mean? That the next, the next that the cylinder. Next the next cylinder, thank you, yes. will have a bullet in it. Um, and so, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not necessarily about bemoaning the fact that we don't know everything. It's more just making sure that we account for the fact um, that some things are not perfectly known and to make sure that our, our actions are responsible given it's that. also a very good analogy for marriage. But um, <laughs> let's move forward and talk about some of these other numbers. So the uh, the actual results, and again, I, I read through the study briefly. I've been reading the coverage. Uh, um, and again, kind of I start going cross-eyed at a certain point reading the actual sure. results. Yeah, but you, um, it, it, you found pretty consistent results in terms of how the the uh, uh, spawning of salmon affected the the volume of conflicts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you sort of uh, present that in a, a layperson way, or a way for well, lay people? Yeah, well, what we found is that in years with low salmon availability, conflict was measurably higher. And it varies from place to place, but the average response is that for each 50% decrease in salmon coming back to a stream in a given area uh, in a given year, you might expect to see on average a 20% increase in conflict. And it's worth noting that salmon varies quite a bit more than 50% per year. So if you had salmon uh, down to um, sort of 25% of, of the norm, you'd have a 40% increase in conflict. So it's this multiplicative effect that each each time it decreases more, your conflict goes up more on average. 
And that's something that you would, would you be able to predict the salmon decreasing? Like, is this a pattern that we can see coming or, uh, and the reason I'm asking this is just to try and sort of, could we then predict the conflict increase? Yeah, that is an implication of this. So so there is a certain ability to predict uh, bad salmon years. It's not perfect. We've certainly seen surprises in years past. Um, but this kind of information does suggest that if we if we knew or, or there was a high likelihood of a bad salmon year coming ahead, uh, then we could sort of direct uh, conflict mitigation uh, for years when we expect conflict will also be acute. And so we could sort of direct uh, more attention to some of these conflict avoiding um, pieces of knowledge that, that we've known for a long time, such as taking good care of, of, of our garbage, not attracting bears to to our to where we are taking good caution when we're in the woods or camping etc um so it does it, it does suggest that yeah we, we it might provide some ability to predict some levels of conflict it's important to point out that we're talking about sort of regional patterns of conflict so what explains years that have a lot of conflict versus what versus years that do not we're not necessarily talking about individual conflict incidences so you might have a really good salmon year lots of salmon on the stream but if you happen to bump into a mama grizzly bear with cubs um, and, and sort of surprise her, a conflict is still quite possible. This isn't saying that in good salmon years, conflict just won't happen, but it is saying that conflict is likely to be a lot worse in, in uh, so it's, salmon years. Yeah, it, it's very much the probability of conflict increasing or decreasing. Exactly. And it doesn't contradict any of the other age-old um, pieces of knowledge about avoiding conflict um, in the woods. So, so certain adages like a fed bear is a dead bear. When we're talking about human food, that is still absolutely true. That if you're, if you're feeding a bear, you might as well uh, just be killing them um, and that they will likely become habituated. They will, and, and the consequences for that tend to be pretty severe. Um, and, you know, avoid, advice making lots of noise when you're in the woods, carrying pepper spray, all of these pieces of advice um, by people like, Stephen Herrero uh, has done has written books on this actually on how to avoid individual conflicts uh, with bears. This all still holds true, uh, but if we're trying to figure out how we avoid certain years when bear conflict seems really high, um, this suggests that the underlying ecology plays an important role and that we need to consider it in our efforts um, to address it. And, and you found also your your other two hypotheses were more more or less just sort of flat, I imagined, in terms of uh, what you were looking at. Yeah, that's right. So we found that uh, that hunting kills had no effect on subsequent conflict. So if you ramp up the number of bears you kill in a given area, uh, there was not a measurable decrease in conflict in subsequent periods. So there was just no measurable effect. And we also found the same with management kills of bears. So if you kill a lot of, of, of so-called problem bears, conflict did not subsequently go up in the same area. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, very interesting to me because it's something that we're seeing more and more and more is just this this the and again it's i think going from what has been a traditional way of looking at wildlife management to a much more uh, um and i want to say economical because of the word economy uh, economy kind of keeps popping in my head but it's ecology i guess is the same thing in that sense it's looking at the data mm-hmm. and it's it's something you know with my background in journalism that i i, I frequently kind of get irritated with is people right. saying we see more conflict in this area or we see more coyotes mm-hmm. uh, which is something i deal with a lot and i say well that does not mean there are more coyotes exactly. that means you see more coyotes but people you know you have this whole fear in media and you know all of the uh 
the conflicts between Disney and uh, uh, the the Grimm and so on, uh, sort of playing in the back of your mind when you have these conversations. Um, but one of the things I, I did want to talk about too was the sport hunting. Um, it is so there. There was no measurable difference between uh, um, you know it, it, the level of conflict in an area when sport hunting had taken place versus when it did not take place. Mm-hmm. Um, now. One of the arguments for hunting, and this this might leave the realm of where we were talking briefly, but we were saying that we frequently are told that um, sport hunting also prevents, um, I'm just trying to think of the right phrasing, but the inhumane loss of life. So they'll say, we know the conflict increases because there is less food availability. <laughs> so if we then let these bears go on without food availability, they'll starve to death. Uh, and that's much more cruel than us killing them. Uh, right. And again, we're, we're, we're broaching into a weird philosophical gray area here, you and I, but we're going to do it together. Okay. Um, so when we start talking about that kind of thing, is there is there a way to measure that? Is there a way to apply the same kind of standard that you're using when you look at what's causing conflict? You're, I mean, you're, you're sticking very much to sound scientific principle. And then you kind of get these weird, again, it's a gray area of philosophy and ethics and I, I, I don't want to say redneck thinking, but that's just what keeps coming to the front of my mind. Right. Um, like it's, it's just that very folksy, you know, well, this is what we've been told. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess- so is there a way to sort of apply what you have done with the population numbers and with the, the, the conflict data? And sort of throw it against the wall with this other stuff and see what comes out. Right. Well, I guess I guess one of the uh, sort of uh, big picture uh, thoughts about this is this idea that we need to manage carnivores, that we need to, that they sort of um, we need to get in there and 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 manage them to avoid this sort of nasty fate of nature. Uh, just kind of is a bit absurd in that carnivores are self-managing uh, from an ecological sense. Populations go down when when they can no longer be supported by a given environment. This happens naturally. Reproduction goes down. There's some mortality. Yes, that's part of nature. Um, but but carnivore populations are self-regulating. They aren't regulated from the top down um, as are species like deer, where if you remove predators from a system, deer explode. This just doesn't happen with carnivores. Uh, for millennia upon millennia upon millennia, these populations have managed themselves. When the food runs out, the population goes down. Um, so, for, so from this sense, the idea that, they, that these populations need to be managed for their own sake is absolutely absurd. Um, this is only in the past 100 years anyone has really thought along these lines, and it just doesn't make much ecological sense. Uh, in terms of this idea that, well, um, that, that the mortality will be high on these food poor years, I don't know of many studies that have, that have looked at this explicitly in bear populations, but the studies that have found that mortality increases in these food poor years, it's almost always human-caused mortalities. Um, and perhaps it's not surprising, the vast majority of mortalities in grizzly bears in British Columbia, for instance, are human-caused. The, the majority of bears that die in this province are at the hands of humans, uh, not through natural causes. Uh, so to suggest that, well, we need to keep this mortality source because it'll have natural death otherwise. Again, I don't know of data supporting this. The data just seems to point in the direction that it's, it's humans that killed him in these years. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I, I don't know of data supporting that particular assertion. Um, and just philosophically, I, I don't know how much sense it makes to say that we really need to intervene here um, in this, this, these systems that have done uh, just fine without Western intervention for, for millennia and millennia. All right. And just so you know, if you decide to uh, to submit an expense report with whiskey on it, I will back you up as a result of this interview. Because <laughs> um, I'm going to do the same thing. But okay, so what, what you're saying and what I'm getting, and every time I do an interview along these lines, when we look at predator population, when we look at conflicts, is we're really the problem. Um, I mean, when you, you look at predator uh, conflicts around the world, there was a big study a couple of months ago when they said, I think it was something like, 80% of the time, we're the ones who started the problem. Yeah. Uh, sort of in the immediate, you know, whether we're going in the water with sharks when there's a bunch of dead fish around at the time of night when sharks want to be looking for food. Mm -hmm. uh, and we dress up like Nemo. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're creating <laughs> these ideal circumstances for conflict. Right. Um, and to me, the science that you're doing that's coming out of Rancos is very frequently just sort of layering on top of it. Uh, and it's uh, wonderfully repeatable too. Um, so what do we do? I mean, as you know, again, I, I'm a writer. I, I do podcasts. I do social media. Um, I tell stories. That's my job. But uh, for, for many people, what can we do to sort of take what you are doing, this important work that's sort of shedding light on what we've been doing wrong and what we're doing right and get it to a point where it's going to impact policy, where it's going to say, you know, we, we need to change, and this is why. How do we move that agenda forward? Right. That's a great question. In terms of moving agendas forward, um, the sort of what's the political step that, that goes beyond my my expertise. But I think in terms of, of, of conceptualizing conflict, um, not as, you know, just being caused by problem animal individuals, but as something else. I think there is there is one really interesting example from just around the corner here um, from the New Hulk Nation in Bella Coola, where they, the way that the stewardship department there deals with bear human conflict is that they don't see conflict events as a result of conflict bears, where the solution is just kill the bear. Um, they see the conflict as a result of some kind of a, something that needs to be changed in the relationship with bears in this area. So they see more, how do we change our relationship with the bears, not how do we destroy the bears. And so they'll do stuff, for example, if, if there's conflict in, in someone's backyard, a bear breaks into someone's backyard, they'll go in and say, okay, well, why did the bear break into the backyard? And they'll look around for attractants, put up electric fences, um, talk with the homeowner about how to move forward to avoid this kind of conflict. And in that particular case, they found enormous success rates by not focusing on the bear, but focusing on the circumstances of the conflict itself and seeing it again as, as the relationship that needs to be, um, to, that needs to be changed. Our interaction with bears, it needs to be changed, not just the bears themselves. So I think this is another, a, a different way to look at it. And I think um, examples like this coming out of the New Hulk Nation, I think really need to be uh, well understood by people trying to avoid uh, human carnivore conflict to see this, these other ways that take this more holistic approach that have a, a better understanding of what's actually driving the conflict than, than these, what's unfortunately a fairly common approach of just assuming, ah, it must be problem individuals, the populations must just be too big, and therefore the solution um, is a bullet. And, and again, we see that that approach just doesn't work. Now, something I, and, and you 
probably don't have an answer to this, and it's an anecdotal question at this point anyway, but it could be something interesting to look into. Uh, when we look at the way certain communities manage these problems, and as you said, this this First Nations community is very solution-oriented. Mm. I mean, that's just good advice for any relationship. Forget bears. Right. Um, you know, like we can't change the bear, but maybe we can change the way we're interacting with the bear. Right. I can say the same thing about friends and family. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also right. true. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious though, and again, with my background and my area of expertise, I wonder how much media or culture from outside of this, this community pours in when it comes to conflicts. Because that's something else we're seeing a lot of, and there is evidence showing that conflict can increase when there is poor media coverage or there is this this fear monger. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have any kind of anecdotal thoughts on maybe how we're being presented information is impacting our willingness or our ability to understand that we need to take steps to change? Yeah, and so this this is something that has been studied: how sort of perceptions of carnivores are both affected by media and also how that sort of plays out um, in terms of how people then deal with the conflict. And that certainly that does seem to be an important part of it. When we only hear in the media about uh, bare human interactions, typically uh, in the very, very worst case scenarios. So for example, when an attack happens, it's all over the news and attacks are exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Um, there's of course no coverage about, oh, another person bumped into a bear in the woods and the bear ran away before they could even get their camera out. Um, <laughs> and so, which, which in my experience uh, is, has been the vast majority of my encounters uh, with bears, not to say of course that, the, that, that, uh, that there, that there aren't potentially dangerous situations and that they need considerable respect when, uh, when, when there's a potential for encountering bears, but this, this image that's often, uh, that's often given in the in the media. That's often um, sort of portrayed by some advocates for for more lethal control. Uh, firstly, doesn't necessarily match reality, and secondly, I think absolutely can contribute to this how we then approach these populations. Um, yeah, I don't know if that sort of. Oh, absolutely, and, and I'm going to ask one more question and let you go because this is this is going on much longer than I think either of us expected. <laughs> sure. but... Um, that, that may have something to do with my philosophical rants that totally derailed any scientific conversation, um, <laughs> is, uh, uh, people who are interested in this. And I ask this, uh, slightly selfishly because as you know, I, I am fascinated by this kind of science, but I, I am not uh, a good student, we'll say, okay. uh, but for all of the people who do listen, and there are a lot of people who are listening, who are, you know, late teens, early twenties that are interested in this kind of work how can they start getting involved and how can they learn about it? Not necessarily in that full academic stream, uh, because I know that, I mean, it's it's a lifelong commitment for someone like you uh, to this kind of education. But for those who do want to learn more about it and understand it in a larger sense, what kind of recommendation can you provide for them so that when this kind of information does come out, they can they can kind of take it in with a little more ease and disseminate it more uh, uh, more tangibly to the public? I think there's a few resources that are really useful um, that deal more with uh, sort of bare human conflict in a situational case. So we were looking at the underlying ecology of these conflicts, but in terms of people wanting to understand better what's happening when a conflict occurs, um, there's one, for instance, again, Stephen Herrero out of the University of Calgary uh, wrote a book about bear attacks, their causes and avoidances. And this is a fantastic tool to read if you're spending a lot of time. Um, in bear country, uh, it, it explains what what leads to some common um, 
common potentially dangerous situations, how to deal with these situations, et cetera. Um, so I think this is one avenue that, that people can go to learn a little bit more about what is happening when conflict occurs and, and how to avoid it in the first place. Um, I guess in general, just sort of questioning, uh, like, like you said, there's often these, these cases where people will say, Stuff like we are seeing more bears in town, therefore the population must be exploding. Well, when claims like this are made, just sort of questioning and saying, hang on a second, was any evidence presented here that those two things are even linked? Um, what, what's the, where is this argument coming from? Is it an actually a scientific argument or is it something else that's sort of being presented as science? Um, I think just sort of having a, an inquisitive mind and really sort of asking where's the data? Uh, where, where's the credibility of this assertion? Um, is, is really useful for, especially for these highly controversial topics where uh, there's very strong opinions and there's very strong statements often made, uh, but they often aren't backed uh, by, by much in the way of evidence. To learn more about this study or other work being done by Raincoast, visit them at raincoast.org. That's the show for this week. I want to thank Kyle for spending so much time discussing his work with us and all of you for tuning in. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.